most of you know what we're doing, uh, where we are in First Corinthians. We've sort of uh, we uh, closed one section of it. And what was the whole first section about, up until where we where we uh, where we ended last week? One word. The cross. Jesus, that's two words. <laughs> <laughs> okay, two words. <laughs> the cross. Uh, and um, it is very, uh, you know, simplistic and Sunday school type of answer, but it really lays down the foundation. And uh, my reflection from it is that we we don't reflect on it enough, we don't think of it enough, we don't meditate on it enough, we don't talk about it enough, and I think uh, there needs to be more where we reflect on the cross and where we are overwhelmed and uh, receive what it really means through the cross. So that was it. That was the last section. And today we move on to a new part where Paul talks about various problems within the church up until like chapter 13. Um, let's go ahead and read and see if you want to tackle this one or not. Okay? <laughs> you actually get a choice. Uh I have, as you know, I have a whole lot prepared. You know, I spend a lot of time preparing this and read a lot. Uh, and I have set aside a couple of Sundays to do more practical things in how to deal with issues within the church, issues that surround Christianity and what people argue about and for or against. Um, how do we receive it as Christians? Um, we'll set aside some of that. Uh, but we do, when we go through the scripture, we tackle the scripture itself because we also want to learn how to read it. How to understand it. So when you're on your own, you can also read the scripture, read the Bible, and understand on your own. Now, having said that, something like what we're going to read today is uh, widely avoided by many churches. <laughs> it's not very much uh, preached upon with. So let's go ahead and read. See, tell me what you think. Okay. So we read together. Uh, this is First Corinthians chapter four, verse sixteen to chapter six, verse eight. As you know, I made it, you know, where you can kind of see the flow of Paul's thoughts and his uh, uh, writing style. I read one verse and you read the next. For this reason, I send you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Jesus Christ Jesus, as I teach them everywhere in every church. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not to talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God depends not on talk, but on power. What would you prefer? Am I to come with you with a stick, or with love in spirit of gentleness? It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and the kind of does not eat among pagans. For a man is living with his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Should you not rather have mourned, so that he who has done this would have been removed from among you? In the name of the Lord Jesus, on the man who has, come, who has done such a thing, when you are assembled, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus. You are to hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved from the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not a good thing. Do you not know that a little yeast eat leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old yeast so that you may be as you are really are unleavened. For the 
Therefore, let us celebrate the festival, not with all yeast, the yeast of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Not at all meaning the immoral of this world, or the greedy and robbers, or idolater, since you would then need to go out of the world. But now I write to you not to associate with anyone bigger than brothers, sisters, with sexually immoral, or greedy, or with idolater, For what have I to do with judging those outside? Is it not those who are inside that you are to judge? When any of you has a grievance against another, do you dare to take it to court before the unrighteous instead of taking it to the saints? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? to say nothing of ordinary matters. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to decide between one believer and another? In fact, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud and believers have that. Word of the Lord. So, what do you think? It is what you think. Paul is talking about there is a one, there is a person in the church who is doing some nasty things and he's saying kick him out of the church. And he's saying that uh, we should judge those in the church. Uh, so there's a whole lot going on. Um, any other questions or thoughts or comments? There's a part where he, you know, Paul says, hand him over to Satan and all of that. Uh, so you guys want to go at it? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, I can whip something up real oh, quick. <laughs> All right. Well, let me pray and we'll dive in. Jesus, we pray for your um, understanding given by your spirit. We pray for humble hearts. We pray that you would help us to see the focus, um, what it means to be gathered as um, those who seek for you, seek you. We pray that your grace will be unto us, yet your spirit will convict us. We thank you for the word that are hard to read and hard to understand, but are good for our soul. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, I think the way I want to approach this is because, and you see as I progress, this is a difficult topic, and there's a lot of diff, uh, wrong and false understanding of it. Um, this is a, one of the parts in the Bible where uh, they are wrongfully used. People use these words to give them license to judge people and convict people and, and condemn people. So we want to properly understand this. So what I want to do, the way I want to approach this with you this morning is give you, um, allow you to interrupt and ask questions. 
So if it's you find something that you would have question of, then then interrupt me, ask me, and uh, we'll sort of tackle it in that way. So I won't go through everything I have here um, one by one, but I want to sort of open up, but first give you an understanding of what we're talking about here and sort of open up for your thoughts. Okay? So starting with verse 17... Uh, it says, For this reason I send you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ Jesus, as I teach them everywhere in every church. This is a new section, and the, the reason we know this is a new section is Paul usually, before every section starts, every part of his letter starts, he would say, he would remind us of the tradition. You know the tradition, you know what I taught you, you know what is taught in every church. Just like Paul said these things, we also have a tradition as a church, we have a, a traditional church of the Nazarene. We have a tradition of the church universal, right? Um, so Paul is saying, for this reason I send you, as in, here's what, what follows, and for what to follow, I send you Timothy. Uh, to remind you, because, you know, church then and now is the same. They're all saying, what, what was that? How, you said that? Like, what was the question? People forget, and Paul is sending them this letter and remind to remind them. So, we have two sections here. The first one starts with verse 18. It says, But some of you thinking that I'm not coming to you have become arrogant. The focus in this is Paul is saying that you are arrogant. But Paul promises that he'll come and find out who's more powerful. Paul compares the power of the cross and, and authority of Jesus to those people who think that wisdom of the world is more powerful. He threatens that, you know, what do you prefer, that I come with a stick or gentleness? So he's setting himself up of something very harsh. This is a bad thing that's going on, right? So in chapter 6, verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1, the problem is stated. It says in verse 1, it is actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you. Better translation of this is, he's, he's saying that it is actually widely reported. He says, everyone knows that there is sexual immorality going on in this church. He's not saying, I heard from somebody. He said, everybody knows. It's a fact. It's known to everybody. Sexual immorality in Greek is pornois. So that's a familiar word for all of us, right? And pornois, sexual immorality, is, is sort of like a bucket of all kinds of sexual sins that he's referring to. But this one is particular. So obviously, what Paul's going to talk about in the next two chapters has to do with sex. You guys want to talk about sex? talk about sex, um, there's two ways I say it, right? Sex, there's a good sex, and there's a bad sex. And I don't mean the way that your friends would talk about good sex or bad sex. There's a good sex in the Bible, and there's a bad sex in the Bible, right? Good sex is what? Someone say, you know it. Man and a wife. Man and a wife. The only good sex in the Bible is a sex between man and wife. So it's the deal that God has set up from the very beginning, one man, one mo woman, one lifetime. That's it. That's the only good sex. Everything else, whether it's heterosexual, homosexual, whatever sexual, it's all bad sex. Uh, this city, Corinth, is known to be a city with tolerance and pride of sexual immorality. So they have like parade that celebrates it. They have outdoor orgies going on. Um, in the ancient world, in, in Roman world, if you say, oh, look at that guy, he's Corinthian, which means he's a very sexually perverted person, 
right? If you point a, a woman and say, that's a Corinthian girl, that means she's a prostitute. So Corinth was known to be the sexual sort of the center in that, in that, uh, in that area. Um, and, you know, Greek, you think of we're bad now, the sexual immorality is bad today. You look at, like, Greek culture and what we find um, and we see in the movies and things. It's not as bad, I mean, it's not that different than what it was in 2,000 years ago in Roman, you know, in time of Rome and in the Greek society. It is pretty bad, right? Pretty nasty stuff. Like today, it's pretty bad, I think, in U.S. U.S., everyone's having sex, anytime. Um, high school students, you know, 70% of high school students, by the time they're senior, have had sex. One-fourth of a quarter of them have had sex with more than four partners. Um, that's statistics. Um, porn industry. You know, when dot-com crashed in 1980, 1998, the only, only like dot-com company that survived and still making lots of money? Porn industry, right? It's a billion-dollar industry. They make more money annually than NFL, NBA, and MLS combined. <laughs> huh? MLS. Major League Soccer. Baseball. MLB. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously Major League Soccer because they make nothing, right? So, I mean, it's a big industry. They thrive. I mean, you know, there are street clubs everywhere in the U.S. There are an estimated 3,000 street clubs in the United States. And, uh, you know, the common revenue of each street club per year is $8 million. I mean, it's bad here. Right? It's bad here. It was just as bad back then. So, Paul is saying, you know, there's sexual immorality going on with you. And I said there's two categories, bad sex and good sex. I can also divide bad sex into four different categories. Right? There's a lust. Lust really doesn't mean sexual lust. Only lust is, you know, the original translation, original, original meaning is just a desire, deep desire. There's a lust which is you desire, you think it, you want it, you're not really moving it into action, but there's a lust, and there is uh, perversion. Uh, you know, if, uh, if Larry would walk off and uh, sneak into somebody's backyard and try to sneak at someone, a girl taking a shower, um, <laughs> you don't say he's perverted, you say he's just horny, <laughs> or he's lustful. Perversion is... What twisted, it's basically the meaning of it, it's twisted, right? What has twisted what is good sex into something else. So perversion includes sex, not only outside marriage, but sex with anything, right? Child, sex with animals, and sex with anything else. That's perversion. Another bad category of bad sex is what? Prostitution. And you know that that just doesn't mean prostitute. It also means when sex is exchanged for something else, where guy and girl goes out on a date, guy buys stuff, and girl feels obligated to provide something else, where there is an exchange of goods and that involves sex. That's prostitution, right? And again, the worst case is abuse, sexual abuse, child molestation, and all of that. That's the abuse of it, right? That's the worst case of it. So there's good sex and bad sex, and there's something that really freaky. And what's going on here in Corinth is... What's going on is so bad, even outside the world, in this city of Corinth, people are going and looking at what's going on in the ch church and saying, wow, that's freaky, right? 
I mean, if it's that bad, it's really bad. Paul is saying, people outside the church, people in Corinth isn't even doing this. They would even disapprove this. And it's going on in the church, and you're arrogant. You think this is great. You have pride. You think, oh, look how open we are. Look how tolerant we are. We're, doing, we're allowing all these things to happen. So they're arrogant. And Paul is pointing out, you are arrogant um, because they are supporting endorsing this person who is having, who is sleeping with um, his, uh, we don't know whether this is his mom or stepmom, whether his father passed away or not. Um, but he's living with stepmom or mom or father of wife of his father. So they're endorsing this and this is going on and he's proud and the whole church is proud. And this is a, this isn't so different from the churches in the United States, right? A lot of churches claim to be proud of because they allow these things happen. They invite and they say this is fine. Because they think that churches think that, oh, it's the attraction. People want us to be free, open, and accepting everybody and allowing everybody. Um, so they're arrogant. They're proud. If we refer back to what Paul has talked about, what are we to be proud of? The cross. There's only thing that we can be proud of, and that's the cross. There's only thing that we offer to people, and all we offer to people is the cross, not of anything else. So that's what's going on. Just to point it out, and we acknowledge that sin happened in the church. The question is, how does church, how does God's people respond to sin in the church? So let's see what Paul commands as the solution. And it goes on in verse 2 and verse 3 and verse 4 and 5. And I can sum it up in this way. He says, He who has done this would have been removed from among you. I have already pronounced judgment. When you are assembled, you are to hand this man over to Satan. So there are three steps that Paul recommends. And he actually commands as number one, assemble. Come together as a church. Do as a church, not individual. Don't go up to somebody. Don't call someone and start judging this person. You do it. As a community, right? As a people, in public, the whole church participates. Uh, and, you know, this, that's why a lot of, some people take this verse out of context and use it as a license to condemn people and judge people. Paul says, assemble first. Come as a church together. His, Paul, he says, the leader is present in spirit. And so is Jesus. Jesus says, when two or more are gathered, What? That I am there with you. It's appropriate to use it here. Because <laughs> this is what it means. Jesus said, when you're gathered together as a church to convict of someone, I am there. You have my authority. So first, assemble. Number two, make judgment. But this judgment is not to condemn, but to discipline. The goal is the salvation of the sinner, not self-righteousness. Paul's goal is trying to heal the church and save the man. So, to accomplish this purpose, the church has to draw a line, right? You can't say, oh, everything goes, whatever society accepts has to be acceptable to us. That's not, that's not possible. That's not enough. We have to draw a line somewhere. And, uh, and against the world where everything is tolerable, Paul says, no, we have to draw a line and we have to judge. We will judge. But the point of it is, the purpose of it is to 
heal, and save. So assemble, judge, number three, kick him out. That is if the person is unwilling to repent and uh, son and the sin is is grave enough, it contaminates the whole church. Like everyone's doing it. This you let this person to do this and everybody else in the church is doing it because oh he's doing it and we're fine and we're proud of it, so I can do it too. So he says kick him out. Now if we are to engage this today what would happen? Let me open it up. What Paul has said here, if we were to engage exact same manner in today's church, what would happen? You lose everyone. What, what, where would they go? To another church. <laughs> right? Because today a lot of churches say, oh, come on, fine. Come, come and you know, join us. Uh, kicking somebody out, not like that, it, does, it has really no um, disciplinary effect because they'll just go to another church. Right? And everyone will leave. Why is that? But let me let me go to here. Let me think of let me let's talk about this one. Because you hear this, and I think our question that we want to ask ask is Is Paul talking about me? Who is Paul talking about? What is Paul who or what type of person is Paul referring by this person who is living with his stepmother? What is who is Paul talking about in kicking that kicking him out? Right? So we want to figure out is this me? So we have to ask questions to ourselves. So ask yourself questions. Number one, do you confess publicly that you're a Christian? If you say no, then you're not applied here. Paul doesn't mean you, right? Paul doesn't mean you. You can come as you are in every church. In this church, you can come as you are and you are welcomed here always, right? If you don't publicly proclaim that you're a Christian, you're welcome. Paul doesn't mean you here. It's okay. Now, if the answer to your question is yes, if you do publicly claim that you are a Christian... Then you got to answer the next question. And the next question is, do you commit sins? And I mean any kind of sins, not just sexual immorality, any kind of sins. Not just what Paul's listed here. Right? And answer is, yes, I think that's everyone, including me, right? I sin, I commit sins, I do bad stuff too. Um, you know, uh, so it's yes for everybody. Then the next question is, are you unrepentant? Meaning, is this ongoing, repeated, without much thoughts? You don't believe it's a sin? It is openly done with pride? Are you boastful? Are you proud of your sin? Proud of your sin? Are you rebellious? And saying that, this isn't a sin, I'm going to keep on doing it. So, you get to distinguish, is who is Paul talking about here? He's not talking about non-Christians. He's not talking about those who don't proclaim themselves as a Christian and say that he's a brother or sister. Uh, he's not talking about people committing just sins. He's talking about those who commit sins and it's a grave sin that affects everybody and saying that 
This isn't a sin. This is fine. I'm going to keep on doing it. So, are you one of them? <laughs> what do you think? What do you think so far? Questions? Okay, keep thinking. <laughs> Let me explain what's going on in the rest of the part. Part two. Paul then writes in the next part about three things that make this hard uh, uh, or excuses that people give. Okay, So this is going on and this is the, these are the excuses that Corinthians are giving. Excuse number one. They're saying, oh, this is a private matter. You know, what they're saying is, oh, it's one consenting adult with another. We shouldn't get involved. Uh, you know, most of you know who's known me long enough, I hate the word privacy. Because it, you know, it, it infers to, you know, secret. It infers to doing something bad. I mean, privacy for going to the bathroom and change, you know, I don't refer to that. But when you say privacy, usually it means secret. So I hate the word privacy. Um, their excuse, and I think we make this excuse a lot, oh, it's a private matter, you don't need to know. It's my thing, I can, it's my, my freedom, it's their freedom to do whatever they want, right? And that's the kind of society we live in, very individualistic, postmodern, where it says, I'm going to do it, it's okay with me, then it's okay, it should be okay with everybody, right? No harm done, no fault. But in verse 6 and 8, Paul talks about the whole church being affected. Because, the church is a family. We're community. We're family. What one person does affects others, right? So he gives the example of yeast. You know, when dough comes and you put yeast, the whole thing is affected, right? He says he's you know making he's making a point that it affects everybody. It's no longer a private matter when you're part of a community. <laughs> Excuse number two. It's verse nine to eleven says, but you said. To stay away, to leave these people alone. So Paul cracks the misunderstanding of Corinthians about what Paul had uh, previously wrote. He says, They thought Paul said not to associate or get mixed up with sinners of the world. So Paul laughs at them and says, Well, if that's what I said, that you can't even be in the world. Right? So Paul corrects them and says, What he meant was, in verse 11, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister. Those who call themselves Christian, but openly and proudly sins. And he has a list of it, sexually immoral, or greedy, or is a uh, adulterer, uh, reviler, drunkard, or robber. And this is just open-ended list. It's not just these five, but the list of sins, right? So Paul says in verse 11 that do not even eat with such a one, meaning the communion. Do not, they cannot join the communion. Of the community. Excuse number three. Their excuse is, well, I shouldn't judge. Let the court settle this. Maybe this became a court case, and maybe they were talking about taking this to the court. Uh, because the beginning and end of that, that part says, why do you go to courts rather than the church? And Paul writes that we are to judge the world. At the end, we have to judge the angels. And he speaks harshly to them, saying that, you say you're wise, isn't there anyone wise among you who can take this matter and correct them? 
So he says that take this matter to public, then regardless of what courts decide, you're going to be losers. So here's what Paul is saying overall, is that he says that things in the church are different. Again, what he's referring to is not people outside the church, it's inside the church. What he's referring are not the people inside the church who are learning about Jesus, who are not yet believers, committed believers, but people who say they are committed followers of Jesus, but proudly does wrong the simple acts. Um, so what Paul is saying is there is no private sin. It affects the whole community. In the world, we mingle with sinners, but not here. Because he says in verse 12, For what is what have I to do with judging those outside? Is it not those who are inside that you are to judge? Verse 13, God will judge those outside. Drive out the wicked from among you. We judge as a church together, not individually, but as church together, those inside the church. Those outside the church, God judges. We don't. So you read this, and it appears to me that the church nowadays tend to do the very opposite. Right? We're busy judging those outside the church. You know, we're known, notoriously known for um, expecting far more from non-Christians than Christians. We are cheaply graceful to those inside the church. And you know what that says is, partly because when Corinthians are proud and when they don't judge, it infers that they're all doing it too. They're afraid that, oh, if we start judging this guy and taking this to public, then what I do might come in light too. So they're hiding. They're not, they're, because they're all doing it, they're afraid to be judged. And so you look at churches today, we tend to offer grace and mercy to unrepentant Christians and uh, drop the heavy hand. Expect far more from non-Christians, which is absolutely the opposite of what Paul is writing here. He said, God will judge those outside. We focus on the inside. Questions? Can you touch on verse 5? Uh, you would hand this man over to Satan, to Satan for the destruction of his, of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Just, I'm a little confused on that. You ought to hand this man over to Satan. There is a... It's... It's really interesting when Paul writes this, what it shows is, what he's saying is, hand him outside the community where there is no admonishment, there is no encouragement, there is no word of judgment from God on this man. Let him be freely be with those outside the church. And what that really refers is, there is something more special about the community than we understand. This is a rim where God protects. This is a rim where God rules and we are engaged in that and we are protected in that. Outside the church, it is overwhelmingly ruled by Satan. So when you're left outside the church, there's no one to convict you. There's, there's nothing but Satan convicting you and saying, oh, you just do as freely as you would. So, 
what Paul means is by saying that hand this man over to Satan means let him go. Let him go. Right? Because he's unwilling to change here. Let him go. So that maybe by being outside, he will be convicted and he'll come back to the community. That is the hope, right? That's the hope. That is the reason for doing it. Not to condemn, but the hope that this person will return. And I have seen, in my experience of being in the church for 40 years, um, there are people who's left the church and came back. Now, there are churches who's left the church and never came back. But if they stay in the church, nothing's going to be changed for this man. So, what Paul is saying is, what we need to pay attention is that it is for, so that his flesh, his sin, destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit, spirit may be saved. This is where we read that his intention of all of this is salvation for this person and protection of the church. But I really like the verse because it refers to this community. It's got far more uh, regard for the church than we think. We think it's just a bunch of people who come together. There is God's protection and Spirit's protection over us. Then we realize. Now, when you look at this, is that us? How are we to take this teaching for our community? Uh, what I wanted to talk about is first to get rid of some misunderstanding and false ideas. You know, because people read this and say, well, this, we can't do this because God is love, right? And God doesn't judge anyone. God's always absolutely tolerant. And we have freedom in Christ. And God wants us to be just happy and do whatever we want, right? Which is false. God is of love, but love is not God, God is also God of many other things, like God of wrath, God of judgment, right? God is the ultimate judge. We are not. But in the church, somehow, we have jurisdiction to judge each other. Freedom is not always a good thing, right? Uh, our, my professor, our professor in um, an NTS, Dr. Noble, some of you guys met, he once had a sermon, he says, there is no such a thing as absolute freedom. In fact, we're never free. We're only free from something. It's either are we free from sin and lust and chained to Christ, or are we chained to lust? So, freedom isn't a good thing because you're, which means if you're not, if you're free, that means you're free from Christ and you're slave to to lust and sins. Um, tolerance is not always a good thing because when you tolerate that which God doesn't tolerate, which means you make God declare God is lying and evil. So, you read this and I think the question is, so are we going to kick anybody out in this church? <laughs> Esther knows that I love kicking people out. <laughs> she said, you're always like kicking people out. You have this thing at six months and you're gone. Terminated. Um, <laughs> are we going to be a church that kicked anybody out? Well, no one immediately. <laughs> Thankfully, right? Um, and you know, you ask, we are a church of new believers and those who come to learn. And if you don't, if you pu don't publicly say you're a Christian, you follow Jesus, 
and you're here to learn and you're here to grow, um, you're welcome here. And you come as you are. We don't judge you. We don't expect you to change overnight. We don't, right? You're welcome here. But if you are, you know, voting members of the church and you are legally signed to be the member of the Church of the Nazarene, then we judge you. We expect more from you. We would tell you, this is wrong what you're doing. Knock it off. Stop doing it. Do you need help? Why? Why, do we, why, why would we do that? Why would we do that as a church? Why does Paul say, tell the Corinthian church to do this? I'll give you two reasons. Because the church is to be holy. Holiness is not sinless, but it's repentant. To be repentant means we have to declare that sin for what it is. If we don't declare sin, then there is no Savior and there is no salvation needed. And because church is to be a counterculture, right? We do as a church things differently than the world. We are called to be different from the world, not to fall into and convert into the culture, but convert to culture. It's This is harsh words, and I think people would... Chris is here for the first time, and she's thinking, I don't want to be a Christian. I come here, you're all going to judge me. Um, you know, and not all of you, you're not the only non-Christian here. Um, not all of you, most of you are going to say, well, I don't want to be a Christian then. This is such a high expectation. Right? You're all scared to be Christian. Um, but think on why you're here. I mean, why you came and why you're here. You're here because, you know, I mean, you're not here because you love the world. If you love the world, there's no reason for you to be here. You know, if you love, you look at the world, addiction, abuse, death, sickness, disappointment, suicide, if you love that, there's no reason for you to be here. You're here because you want something else, right? You're here because you want relationship with God. You think, is there a God who would love me? Is there a God who would accept me? Is there a God who would care for me? Is there a God who is gracious? So the point is that everyone can come to Christ. Everyone can come to Christ. And people come to Christ because the world isn't good. People come to Christ because they want life and life to the fullest. Because Jesus offers the freedom from these things that hurt you and hurt us. That we come here with a promise that God will offer us something that is far greater than the world offers. But we here in the church proclaim and declare sin. What is sin? What holds you back from coming to Christ? We tell you, you do these things, this doesn't please God, this holds you back from coming to God. Stop doing it. Know that God is loving, but we're patient. I, you know, don't think because I sit here and I'm a pastor that I don't understand where you are. I had sex before marriage. Um, I had all kinds of stuff. And uh, I went to church. The only thing I felt 
while I was going to church and doing all sorts of stuff, was just a guilt. I just felt bad. I'm like, man, I shouldn't do this. Because it tells at the church to not do this. I read the Bible. I'm not supposed to do this. I just really felt bad. I just felt really guilty. It didn't feel good. But I kept doing it because that's who I was, right? I kept doing it. But when God kept in my heart, when the cross became something more than what I just read, I stopped wanting to do it. I struggle and I you know, fall sometimes, but I stopped doing it. No one needed to tell me to stop doing that. I knew I don't want to do this anymore. So, I'm on the gracious side. I, I take on the part of grace more than condemning and judging. Until you are captured by God's love and fully receive the cross, I'm patient with you forever. I'm patient with you and I won't judge. I'll accept you as who you are. What I teach you is the cross. Because the cross as Paul says here, his power to change us, power to make us different, power to make us live over the step where I want to be like Jesus. I want to chase after Jesus in the world. None of this makes me happy anymore. None of this. I recognize these are not what will give me joy and hope. Because on the cross, Jesus took all that we've done all that we will do, and He made us way to be with God, to have a relationship with God. And in that relationship, we have hope, we have meaning, we have identity, we are called children of God. We are called to rule over this world when God comes. We are called to find peace, not guilt. Find grace, not condemnation. Find mercy, not judgment. That's the message of the cross. And Paul says, referring back to again to the cross, there's a power in the cross. Go to the cross. Take these people to the cross where they find freedom in Christ and free from whatever the stuff they thought you know they were holding on to. If you have a question, we'll take it afterwards. Um, but let me pray for us, and uh, we'll share the bread and the cup. Father, I pray that all of us would take hold of grace. But there's only grace if we recognize that we are people of sin. That we're rebellious, that we're proud, we want to take things in our own way, and that you don't matter, that we matter, that we're not related to you, there is no God, there is no creator over me, there is no father over me, that I'm on my own. Help us realize who we are and the sins that we live in, and how hurtful this is in our lives, so that we chase after your grace. And we make this community where it is protected by you and we protect one another and we lead each other to the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.